The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Uh, EJ, we were about to sit down and record this episode today, and Frank Wright got fired, and then Jeff Saturday, of all people, got hired as the interim head coach of the Indianapolis Colts. I am struggling to form a take on this because it is so completely out of left field. The Frank Reich firing, I, I understand, considering the events of the last couple of years. Uh, Jeff Saturday was ESPN analyst, like, was a consultant in the past but to my knowledge wasn't really in the building uh and you know having relationships with the players and the assistants uh he does have high school coaching experience i get you know i guess it's relevant um and was obviously a longtime player so he knows how to operate within an nfl building but going from espn analyst to nfl head coach in a 48 hour time span I don't know if I have ever seen that before. And uh, we'll, we'll do this in two parts. Number one, uh, Jeff Saturday being named. Number two, Frank Reich being fired. Uh, on Jeff Saturday being the new head coach of the Indianapolis Colts. What the hell? I <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> uh, the NFL never boring. It To me, I think about all the guys in the building, and it is guys in this particular building Gus Bradley 33 years of NFL experience former head coaching experience John Fox 40 years of NFL experience including head coaching experience guys that have a lot of NFL experience like Kevin Mawai who's only got six years of coaching experience but a lot of time around the league um, Scott Milanovic their quarterbacks coach 19 years of experience Scotty Montgomery 17 years of experience at running back tons of NFL experience and Jim Irsay, your owner, goes, hey, by the way, uh, there's this former player. I really like him. I talk to him all the time. He's a high school coach. He's your boss. That's going to be a really interesting transition because, like we both said, he's not been in the building. There is a, a rhythm, an ebb, and a flow, and a knowledge within a building. And if you're not there every day involved in sort of the logistical decisions and the politics and everything else to be just inserted and be like hi i'm i'm your new head coach you all know me i was peyton center and uh yeah we're gonna we're gonna win well, like, he was teammates with reggie who is a coach on the staff <laughs> yeah with one year of experience so there's a lot of choices here this strikes me as a very jim ursay move not so much the firing the firing like you said is understandable uh, I don't necessarily agree with it because of the success rates of in-season coaching changes. However, 
pretty clear the Colts really aren't going anywhere this year, and Ursay's patience ran out. He chose to fire Reich. I get that. The Saturday thing was a curveball. We were talking about this in normal tones till the Saturday news broke, and then we started talking about it in hysterical tones because it doesn't make a ton of sense from the outside if it does work out by some miracle. It is an instant Disney movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Because what, I mean, I don't recall this ever, ever happening before. The only one that got close that I can think of is like Josh McCowan. You remember that? Josh McCowan getting head coach interviews as basically a guy with high school coaching experience and a lot of time. Who was a player like right before that. Yeah. Right. Like that was the closest like, wait, wait, wait. You're going to take a guy with basically no NFL coaching experience and make him an NFL head coach. And there were ripples from that throughout the league from lots of longtime tenured, you know, assistants and folks who were saying, wait, you're not even going to give me a shot, but this guy that was a former player that's never coached, you're going to give him the head spot. And that there was some serious smoke to that fire. This is in its own a different animal. It'll be fascinating to see how this plays out. My initial reaction, my gut reaction is not well. And then on the on the Frank Reich angle and, and my buddy Kyle Yates put out a, a, a good tweet about it. Like you look at the quarterbacks that Frank had, you know, Andrew Luck, Jacoby Brissett, Brian Hoyer, Philip Rivers, Carson Wentz, and then this year Matt Ryan and Sam Ellinger still went forty and thirty-three and one, which is a, a five forty winning percentage over that time, where he never had a starting quarterback for more than a year. That is impressive. Like objectively impressive and Kyle made a good point there but at the same time I feel like uh this this organization was so cavalier at the quarterback position believing that they could just keep bringing people in and that they could just keep building a roster good enough where quarterback play was the least important ingredient and I think that kind of approach always works until it doesn't and it, and it demands so much of your GM and your scouts and your capologists to continuously build a roster that can support literally a carousel at quarterback and so that kind of approach like as long as the roster is being maintained you can sort of make it work and they did sort of make it work but as soon as you have a down year or you're taking a whole bunch of injuries or you whiff on one draft class, it completely falls apart. And, and you look at them this year, the offensive line is horrific. Like this is the first year I can remember in a while where the offensive line was this bad. And you combine that with an older quarterback that can't move or a younger quarterback like Ellinger who just doesn't see pressure well, and you have no offense. And the defense is also, other than the defensive line, also super inconsistent and obviously um you know Leonard being hurt didn't help things early in the year either so this approach of we're going to build a great roster and then wing it at quarterback works until it doesn't and even though Frank Reich as the head coach bears responsibility for that I also think that Chris Ballard should bear some responsibility for that too because they knew Anthony Costanzo was retiring he did it a couple years ago. They had a couple swings at a couple off seasons to make sure that left tackle was not as big a problem as it is, and they failed to do that. Um, so it's kind of on him, too, and he's still there, and now Jeff Saturday is the head coach, and the whole situation is 
beyond messy. 100%. I do not think Ballard is beyond reproach here. In fact, I think he should be squarely in the sights. His approach at quarterback has been don't get fired, like personified. Like since Andrew Luck, they've wanted to squeeze the last bit of juice out of very veteran oranges. That was Philip Rivers at the very tail end of his career. Hey, maybe we can get that one last spark out of the bottle. To an extent, Carson Wentz, we can salvage him. We can get him for cheap. Maybe we can return him to mid-level heights, and that'll be good enough with our roster. With Matt Ryan this year, we really thought he had stuff left in the tank. He showed it last year in Atlanta. Unfortunately, he fell off a cliff physically sometime during the offseason. And this has been the, but I got names, but I built the team. This is the checkbox approach to building a team, which is please don't fire me because I don't want to take a swing at a young quarterback who, if they flame out, I'm definitely getting fired. Mm -hmm. So like you said, that approach works until it doesn't. And I think Ursay is to the point where he's ready to take the big swing. In fact, he's going to need to because, as you pointed out, and we had written into the script last night before this happened, the other areas on this team are not spotless. The defensive line is strong. Linebackers have been okay. Some of that's Shaq Leonard energy. Some of that's not. The secondary has dropped off a little bit. The offensive line has dropped off a lot. And they've stacked some playmakers, but without a quarterback, that's sort of of less import. So this is not a team, and we'll talk about this later, that's one player away. Even if they do get that stud young quarterback and he does work out, which is, again, a smaller percentage each time you say it, they're not just going to waltz back to contention. It's going to take a little bit, and that may end up costing Ballard his job anyways. Now, one project, um, Jeff Saturday, if he's going to be there, the one project I want him to tackle is Bernhard Ryman. Because that that's the that is the significant swing that Ballard did take to try to replace Costanzo, mm -hmm. and to say it's been up and down is an understatement. They gotta fix him so that whatever quarterback they're going with next year, whether it's Stroud or Bryce Young or Levis, whoever, they gotta fix Bernhard Ryman because the the two sacks he gave up yesterday it, it that's only the beginning. And we knew he was a project. Full mm -hmm. disclosure, we knew he was a project, but like. Their answer at left tackle was a project that they thought they could fix up a lot quicker than they are, which is a failure on Ballard's part, but also a failure on the coaching staff's part. They got to fix him because if they don't fix him, then they're really screwed. They're already screwed, but they're screwed even more if they don't fix him. So I don't know if I'm a Colts fan. I don't even know how to react to today because a lot of Colts fans wanted right gone. I don't think that Jeff Saturday was their moonshot for a replacement so there are probably a lot of mixed feelings here i think they just want the season to be over and they want to move on to the draft i think that's where we're at i don't doubt that we're going to talk about them more later on but let's roll the intro and get into the rest of the show do it All right, EJ, we have a ton of games and a ton of uh, storylines to talk about today. I'm not going to waste too much time in the intro. Uh, first things first, thank you to all of our executive producers, Marat, Consti, Caden, Andrew, Taylor, and Liam. Everybody in the executive producer tier on Patreon for helping to make this show possible. We appreciate you guys. We love you guys. Uh, and with that, 
Let's get into these games. First one, uh, now that we've had a while, almost a week to digest it, let's talk about that Thursday night matchup between Philly and Houston now that we've gone back and watched the tape. Um, I, I think that our original impressions, uh, not just of the Eagles, but of the Texans, were fairly accurate during the live stream last week. But going back and specifically watching the tape and all the Damian Pierce carries over and over and over again, I think even for me, who's a massive Jordan Davis fan, I totally underestimated how important Jordan Davis was for that defense. They could not stop the run without him. It was bad. It was horrific. And I know the Eagles still won comfortably, but if they're going up against a team that can really run the ball and Jordan Davis isn't there and he isn't healthy because he's still coming back from that ankle, a team that's better than Houston will beat them because that that was bad. That was straight up bad. They were able to control a lot of the game, the clock, and we talked about this in the open on Thursday night. If you came in early, half an hour before kickoff, you heard me say Eagles are giving up 5.2 per rush. Mm-hmm. Now, the scoring defense is okay, and the secondary's been amazing, highly opportunistic, but from a core perspective, like you said, if you get a very powerful rushing team, like, say, oh, I don't know, cough, cough, Tennessee, and they mm-hmm. want to come in and impose their will that way, they can do it against the Eagles without Jordan Davis. And the Titans, by the way, do play them on December 4th, so coming up pretty soon here. It's going to be a cold game in Philly. Davis should maybe on paper be back by then but you know how ankles are they're really finicky um that is going to be a a pretty pretty crazy matchup and then you know right after that they got against Saquon and then the Bears who can also by the way run the ball and then you got Dallas they can run the ball you got the Saints and then another matchup with Saquon so most of the teams in the back half of the schedule can run and run a lot that's one area they're gonna have to shore up if they if they want to a stay unbeaten and B, keep pace for the number one seed in the conference. Um, on the flip side of things, Jalen Hurts, man. The growth, I know we talk about it every week. The growth for him just continues to astound. He was dealing early and often. Um, him plus A.J. Brown plus Devonta plus Goddard plus you know getting the backs involved in the passing game. It's almost like a damned if you do, damned if you don't approach because Miles Sanders can rip off a big gain and then you got A.J. Brown just out-muscling people with his 230-pound frame. You got Devontae being silky smooth over the middle. It's an extraordinarily hard offense to to defend because it's not even like they do anything fancy. They don't do anything crazy. They just out-talent people and they trust Hurts that we, we've got a one-on-one Hit the throw, and he'll hit the throw. Hey, we, we don't we don't got a good look here. See if you can make something happen to your legs. He'll do it. Like, he and AJ and Devonta just out-talent everybody. And when they really need to, their offensive line averages 320 pounds. Like, they can lean on you and run it as well. So, I really don't know what the game plan is to stop them at this point. I don't even know if they can be stopped. And uh, at, at some point, obviously, the run defense will come back to bite them. But offensively speaking, what do you do? I, I, I got no answers. To me, they look like the NFC flip side to the AFC's Dolphins in terms of 
They have a quarterback that understands the system. He is accurate and now quick in terms of his decision-making. He's got weapons at every level, at every layer, wherever he looks. In fact, Philly's weapons, you know, maybe not quite as good in the receiving game as the Dolphins, but pretty close. And in the rushing game, maybe a little bit better. So they both have good tight ends. You just can't cover everybody. And when it all breaks down, I would rather have Jalen Hurts running the ball than Tua. So, oh, yeah. Not even so close. So <laughs> it's one more X factor of, oh, by the way, you happen to get decent coverage on everybody this time. Oops, you didn't account for Jalen. He's going to pick up the easy first down with his legs. So it's really fun to watch both of those teams and the growth of both of those quarterbacks. But Jalen's ability to hit those shots outside the numbers with touch that he's done for the past sort of three weeks really changes their offense. Before he was working over the middle, working the edges, occasionally a shot down the seam. Now he's hitting that seam, you know, not seam ball, boundary ball to AJ. And that's just a whole different thing. You can't, it's making somebody cover every inch of grass, and that makes them extremely dangerous. Also, side note, when A.J. Brown got paid $25 million a year, a lot of people kind of were like, mm, I don't know. I hope you've realized at this point $25 million is plenty for A.J. Brown. He's 100% worth it. There's a graphic last night during the Titans game where he has single-handedly outproduced the entire Titans receiving core. So, yeah, $25 million seems fair. I think he's worth it. Um, now, and look at for, all the teams that don't have that receiver this year. Oh, they're like, all struggling. The all Titans, like you, we yeah. said it time and again throughout the summer preview series. You gotta have the alpha. You gotta have the go-to. You gotta have a number one. And if you don't have a number one, or you think you have two, you probably don't have one. We talked about Jamar Chase last year and his mm-hmm. difference he made. Like, and then you see by subtraction, AJ Brown goes from the Titans to the Eagles. The Eagles offense comes up. The Titans offense struggles on those. Gotta have it outside receiving downs. It's a thing, folks. There were some throws that Malik Willis made last night that were objectively really good throws that receivers didn't come down with. And and I knew I was like AJ would have caught that shit because <laughs> he did when he was in Tennessee. The like the yep. one handers. He would have caught that shit. So, again, not to belabor the point, I know Titans fans, last night was painful for you, and you hate AJ because he keeps trolling you on Twitter. Titans fans despise him. But you got to admit, he's worth the $25 million. Um, now, as for my, my prize pick slip, which for the first time in a while got completely blown up by this game, uh, I, I, <laughs> I bet on Damian Pierce, but I bet on receiving not rushing. I I didn't anticipate the Eagles' run defense would be as bad as it was, so he picked up pretty much, actually literally, all of his yardage on the ground. And because he was so successful at running, Davis Mills didn't have to throw as much as I thought he would, so I missed on the, missed on the over for pass attempts for him. The aforementioned A.J. Brown got a receiving touchdown, so I missed on that one. And then Hertz cracked the over on his passing yards because he was just throwing at will early in that game. So I got one out of five on that slip. First time, I think, all year I've done that poorly. Most of the time I've hit. But, uh, you know, week nine, finally getting got, I'd say I had a pretty good run there. You had a really good run, but sometimes it's a funny game. The ball bounces interesting ways. 
uh, you know, and you're talking about your Jalen Hurts bet. It was like two thirty six and a half. He went two forty three. Like, I know it was, it was didn't tight. Didn't miss yeah. by a lot. Now the Damian Pierce thing, I won't forgive you for because you didn't ask me pregame, and I would have <laughs> said, "Wait," which is what I said when you announced it. Wait, receiving, not rushing. However, that would have been you know two out of five. You still would have been looking at sort of insurance territory, not a not a clean win. But overall, you're up for the season. Yeah, overall, I'm still way up for the season. We're gonna. We're going to try to, to make up ground this Thursday. We have a very quick rematch between the Falcons and the Panthers on Thursday night, who just went toe-to-toe a couple weeks ago in an OT thriller. And I think if the Falcons win this game, they're back in contention for division lead because Tampa lost. And if New Orleans loses tonight, God, the NFC South is so bad. Tampa, Tampa didn't lose. Oh, you're right. Tom came back. That's the thing is that game felt so awful (laughs) and they were so bad for most of it. I totally forgot about the last two minutes. We'll talk about that game soon. But so I can't remember now if the Falcons are eligible to to get back the division lead on Thursday, but they're still in in the the mix, which is regardless, that's impressive. So uh, stop on by again Thursday night. We got Falcons Panthers. Uh, We're going to do some film study over the next couple days and figure out exactly which Falcons running back. Uh, we want to put our money behind. Maybe we'll do both because both Algier and Patterson are having success. And then we're going to figure out if there's literally any redeeming thing <laughs> with the Panthers that we can bet on. Uh, hope you guys will will come by and watch that likely shit show of a game with us. Uh, remember, if you want to fill out your slips also for the Thursday game or for the Sunday games or the Monday game, any game you want, uh, prize picks will match your deposit up to $100 with promo code bootleg. So, I'll tell you what, for a bad football game, that's one way to make it interesting. I know that's what we're going to be doing. So hopefully you guys join us in a couple days. And uh, with that, EJ, let's get to three up. Three up number one. God, I've been waiting for this for a long time. The Bears offense. I know they lost, but we've talked a lot of good things about the Dolphins this year, so we have to acknowledge the Bears came close and almost won that game and were a very questionable non-pass interference call away from maybe getting a chance to tie it. But uh, the Bears offense for the last three games has looked more than functional for three straight weeks. So consider this three up like a collective, hey, the Bears are going on a little bit of an offensive run here. Um, the run game is phenomenal, anchored by Justin Fields, oddly enough. Um, they're doing a lot of concepts that we see in Baltimore. They'll, they'll call QB belly, which means like they're running a pin and pull with Justin behind a lead block from the running back. They're calling zone reads. They're calling counter bash. All the stuff you see in Baltimore, they're calling that with Justin Fields. And he got 178 rushing yards, which is the most ever in the regular season for a quarterback in NFL history um, that that offense beyond just Justin's rushing ability the complement the complementary rushing ability that Monty and Herbert have and then you just hit a couple good balls down the field per game to either Mooney or Cole Komet sometimes like th- that's all they need is just a couple big chunks through the air and the run game does the rest it reminds me a lot of the early Lamar Jackson offenses in Baltimore that were still very effective, even though they didn't throw that much. Same thing in Chicago, still very effective, even though they're not throwing that much, but very hard to prepare for, very hard to defend. 
I'll tell you what, 30 points is 30 points. In the last three weeks, they're putting up like 30 points a game, and uh, I'll, I'll take it. This is a seminal moment for the Bears franchise. And onlookers who are not fans, who've been sort of, hey, is Justin Fields the thing? Do they believe in him? Are they going to support him? Is he the real deal? Are they going to replace him? Over. Over and done with. Everybody knows it now. All the defensive coordinators know it now. You're seeing his potential realized over the last three weeks since the mini-buy. They had a 10-day break after a Thursday game, and Eberflus and his staff, Ryan Poles, sat down with every player on the roster, said, what are we doing well? What are we not doing well? They re-looked, took a very hard look at all their offensive concepts and said, Where, what can we port? What can we bring in to really accentuate strengths and get rid of the stuff that's not working? Not every coaching staff does that that rigorously and a lot of them will continue to do things that are working not well or averagely they swept all that crap out and the offense has looked completely different since then they started primarily designing runs for justin fields and not just scrambles but designed quarterback runs and there's a huge difference in how you set your offense up and the results have been staggering quite frankly uh justin fields broke the most rush yards in a regular season game by a qb that was mike vick's record he put up 178 but more importantly the run game as a whole is ridiculous and historic so the bears joined the 76 steelers as the only teams in the super bowl era with at least 225 rushing yards in four consecutive games And they're also the first team since the 1978 New England Patriots with at least 200 rushing yards in four straight contests. So this is not a little bit. This is not, oh, we played some bad defenses. And I want to give the Dolphins their flowers. I was on with Travis Wingfield, our buddy, who is the Dolphins PR guy, uh, and was on the Drive Time podcast with him previewing the Bears, and we talked about the run game. He specifically brought up the backs. He knew. Travis is a really well-informed guy. But the fact that they have been setting this pace for multiple weeks, basically a month now, and they're getting it from both backs, and now Justin on top of it at this ridiculous historic pace. The Dolphins are a really good team. This is not a bad football team. This is a 100% for real, very complete football team playing well together. And they barely survived Justin Fields going supernova to get the win. Now, they did earn the win, and I want to give Miami its props. Great team, great coaching, good win, and well-earned because this was not a fluke. All the DCs that are left on the Bears' schedule are now currently scratching their heads going, WTF. What in the hell am I going to do about Justin Fields' ability to break open a game basically whenever he wants at Mm -hmm. will? The 60-plus yard touchdown, he broke 20 miles an hour. He is the only quarterback with multiple 20-plus mile an hour runs this year in the NFL. 61 yards, the, the sort of acceleration from when he pump faked and hopped to through the linebackers that four to six yards that little snippet was different Mm -hmm. he broke like four tackling angles with just pure burst it wasn't wiggle it was just i'm gonna gun it and i'm gonna be farther along than you thought i was and you're gonna be diving in my wake that's not regular that's rare nfl players are very used to fast players they see them every week it was faster than that so when you get a guy with that much speed, that much running ability, who is now running with confidence 
and then can open up his arm and make some of the throws that he made throughout that game. Defensive coordinators who have to face Justin Fields for the rest of this stretch are no longer going, ah, this is going to be a pretty cool week. Like the Bears offense can't put up more than 20 points. Like we're good. All I got to do is hold them below 21 and we're going to win the game. Now they're going, "Mm, can I hold them below 30? I'm, I'm not sure that I can. If you give Justin Fields a couple of more offensive line pieces, and that is coming back to health, Cody Whitehair was back, Riley Reef is now the starting right tackle apparently based on snap counts, you saw what that's going to do. You surround him with some more weapons. They did that with Chase Claypool, who was featured heavily in 38% of the offensive snaps for his mm-hmm. first week they in They wasted town. no time getting him on the field. And he looked pretty comfortable, too. So if you continue that pace, you grab a couple more offensive line pieces, you grab another receiver and maybe a receiving tight end, you've already got the backs and Justin Fields, this is going to be a real offense. And folks in Chicago are sighing a very, very deep and longstanding sigh of relief. The Bears have never had the guy. I'm going to tell it to you right now. The Bears have the guy, and everybody knows it. By the way, one more note on that 61-yard touchdown uh, was basically completely on accident because if you look at it, they called mesh on third and five, which is like a classic third and medium call. It was a cover three zone. Mooney was settling over the middle, and because of that really quick pressure coming off the edge, uh, Fields was stepping up and sliding to his left, and he wanted to open up his hips to come back to Mooney, but as he was starting to slide, Mooney thought he was just going to run. And so Mooney then wheeled down and went down the field. And so Justin was like hopping and almost because he played shortstop when he was a baseball player. It was the same mechanics where he's like jumping and opening as if he's like, you know, turning two or something like that. And then he saw Mooney wheeling was like, oh, shit, and pulled it down in midair and then took off uh, and and scored on it. But like that was supposed to be a pass like he was going to throw it. And then Mooney just misread it and he still made it work. He still scored on that play. So what, what I found encouraging about it, beyond just the fact that he's a freak of nature, was that he wasn't just running to run. Like, he mm-hmm. wanted to throw. He was moving to throw and then had no other option but to run. But he's a guy that when he has no other option and he has to run, he can still score. So yeah, he's just he's a special, special talent. And uh, the Bears are very lucky to have him. And this is the first time in a while where I feel like we're kind of out of the dark ages. Like we're out of the time period where we're questioning and we're wondering and we're hoping. Like it feels like this this is real and tangible and the success is, to, is sustainable. And obviously long term, just like long term for the Ravens, they got to do more. But it's going to work for this year. And going into the offseason, they have a gazillion dollars and a whole bunch of picks to work with. And as long as they hit on this offseason, the Bears will be good. Like, they absolutely will be good. I feel it in my bones. Uh, 100-plus million going into free agency. Full slate of draft picks, even with the one they traded away for Chase Claypool. They still have another second-round pick. It is a complete reset, and that has been Ryan Pohl's goal since the day he took over, is clear the books, clear the decks, get rid of everything that Pace and Nagy did, get us a clean horizon for 2023. And so this was supposed to be the lost year, but big props to Luke Getze. 
Mm -hmm. Luke Getze leaves Green Bay and comes to Chicago. And look at what's happened in Chicago, especially since the mini-buy, and look at what is currently happening in Green Bay. Like, Luke Getze deserves his flowers, his credit. What he has done is something that no offensive coordinator in Chicago has done in the last 10-plus years, which is custom design a working offensive plan designed around quarterback strengths. And we're seeing the fruits of that with a very talented quarterback in Justin Fields. Getsy deserves a huge amount of praise. Yeah, I just, I don't know what to do with myself, EJ. I'm optimistic. It's, it's weird. It's weird. It's fucking it's, weird. <laughs> it is a very uncomfortable place to be as a Bears fan. We're happy, but we're like, wait, what? We're good? Wait, yeah. on offense? What? Speaking of uncomfortable optimism, three up number two, the Jets beat the Bills. And not even like in a weird, oh, they shouldn't have won, but they won kind of way. Like, no, they beat the Bills. They, like, talent versus talent beat the Bills. Even without Brees Hall, even with injuries, and, you know, God, Lord knows the Jets have had a lot of offensive line injuries this year. The defense played phenomenally well. Uh, Michael Carter was very efficient on the ground. Zach Wilson didn't give the game away uh, with with dumb turnovers. Like, they absolutely straight up, toe-to-toe, blow-for-blow, beat the Bills. That being said, I do want to make a quick point if I have one takeaway about this game that isn't positive on the Jets, and there's a lot of positive we can, we can talk about for the Jets. For the Bills specifically, every single Bills loss looks the same which is either they can't run the ball or won't run the ball. In this case, they couldn't because the Jets' defensive line is that good and Quinnen Williams is a freaking nightmare. So they couldn't run the ball. And when teams know that they won't run because the Bills always abandon the run at the first sight of difficulty, all of a sudden that kind of opens up everything else and they can tee off with stunts and they can fly up the field. When they don't have to worry about Devin Singletary, you know, getting 15 to 16 carries and they know it's going to be a pass every single time they can completely tee off. And we saw once again, Josh's old nemesis uh, pop up, which is teams play like cover two or quarter, quarter half or cover four. They kind of just put a cap over the top of the long game or on top of the deep ball. And they don't give him the deep crosses and they don't give him four verticals and they take away like the big post on the backside of Y cross. And when he is forced into quick throw, quick throw, quick throw, scramble, scramble, another quick throw, another quick throw. When he's forced into doing these like 10, 11 play drives where he has to do everything because they're not running the ball, he gets frustrated. And when he gets frustrated, he makes mistakes. And those two picks were horrific because he was frustrated and aggressive and just wants it all right now like that pick that that sauce got on him same thing that happened against miami it's cover two it's cover two and sauce is sinking like it's a very simple read read the hang corner if he's sinking don't throw that ball and he did it anyway and it's not like he was hit as he threw or anything like that like he was looking at sauce and just thought yeah i could fit it in there no you can't He's a top five corner this year. You can't fit it in, Josh. Throw it literally anywhere else. And, and he's just, I am so frustrated because every Bills loss is the same. They can't run the ball. They put it all on Allen. He gets frustrated. He makes mistakes. He turns it over. 
how many times are we going to have to watch this game before they learn their lesson? Run the fucking ball. I don't care if you're getting three yards a carry. You have to at least convince them that you're willing to do it or they're going to keep doing this to Josh. Mind-blowing to me. Mind-blowing that we're like four years into this same problem and they still won't fix it. Well, they did fix it, and that's the really frustrating part about this entire take. First things first, credit to the Jets. We'll talk about the Bills in a second, but credit to the Jets. We've talked about it for the last three weeks in a row, that the roster building, especially the defensive line rotation and all the pressure they can bring, the secondary playing at an insane level, Sauce just being Sauce. I said he was that guy. He's that guy. No surprise. Jets won this game, and if you want to give – flowers to the Jets it's Zach Wilson played not great in the first half looked scattered and all over the place came out in the second half and you could tell that the coaches had sat him down and said stop it <laughs> stay in the pocket stay on schedule run the reads and we will win this game and he did he came out he was like it looked like he was on a 10-foot leash from the center he just stayed in the pocket threw the ball on time they started moving the ball it was it was just a complete mirror image the Bills had fixed this problem. When we saw him in the opening game in SoFi, the thing that was amazing was he was willing to. He was mm -hmm. so willing to wait. He was cool as a cucumber. And we looked at each other and said, that's it. That's the unlock. He's unbeatable now. If yeah, they were wait, willing to do the 12-play drive. Yes. If he will wait, it's patience, right? Patience was his superpower early in this season. Early in this season, that's the thing that makes it so frustrating to talk about this, is they had it. They had it dicked. They unlocked this, right? They had it. And somehow, over the last three weeks, really in the last three weeks, about three weeks ago, we started to see the cracks. We saw it against Green Bay. He made a couple of these throws, and we said, oh, we have code for that. It's old Josh or bad Josh or whatever. And I put out a tweet this week that said, oop, bad Josh popped his head up early. That's not a good sign. He's getting frustrated. And when he had that patience, it was like armor because he can do mechanically all the 10, 12 play drive stuff mm -hmm. easily. Like it's, it's baby steps for him. That's the thing. It's so far below his capacity that he's like, I want to turn it up. You know what it reminds me a little bit? Remember Bull Durham? God, I haven't seen that in 10 years. Nuke Lelouch, right? Yeah. <laughs> I want to bring the heat. I want to establish my presence with authority. It's like, Josh, like I can throw the 60-yard bomb. Let's go. And it's Kevin Costner or whoever it is in the Bills organization, whether it's Dorsey or somebody else going, give me a changeup on the outside corner. I want to throw the changeup. I got this cannon on my right side. I want to use it, right? And when he didn't do that, when he threw the changeup, he was a more complete pitcher. He was a better quarterback. He was basically unstoppable because, again, he has all the answers. We talked about it with Jalen Hurts earlier that, like, he's got all these weapons. And when he doesn't, Josh is a human tractor trailer. He can run people over. So good luck with that. The one thing that's his Achilles heel is this, I want to turn it loose. I want to force the ball. I want to get it done right now. And he's got to back off that. He's got to get back to where he was at the beginning of the season, be patient, run the 10-12 play drives, scramble for seven, and just frustrate the hell out of him on third and six, right? Just do that over and over again. You can't beat him at that point, but he can beat himself by throwing a couple of bad picks, especially when they're right down in the red zone like they were early in the game. That is just the thing he needs to avoid the most, and if they can't get him off that, run the ball or not, 
they're going to struggle because defensive coordinators have this plan. They, too, have been watching the last three games, and they know what the blueprint is, and he's going to see it over and over again because the NFL is a copycat league, and they're going to make him until he proves that he can be patient, and then they'll have to do something else. And there's not a lot of good answers at that point. Uh, unfortunately for Buffalo, they are hanging on to the first seat by a thread because they're 6-2 and two because they've had a bye week um, I have to double check on exactly what what the the rules are in terms of how the seed the seeds are calculated when one team has more uh, more games and thus more losses than the other. But two teams that have beat them also have six wins, and the Chiefs have six wins, and the Ravens are right behind them at five, and the Titans. I don't want to completely write off the Titans yet because every time I do, they come back and they, they, <laughs> they search. But, like, they're hanging on to the one seed by an absolute thread. And I'm talking by, like, half a game over the Jets and Dolphins. And if the Bills lose again and they're all sitting at 7-3, they're a wild card team. Like, it, I think they would actually technically be a seven seed uh, or at least minimum a six seed. So you can either be first or you can be a six seed, depending on this AFC East race. They cannot afford to drop games like this. They kind of have to run the table for the rest of the season, to be honest, just to keep pace. And um, I'll tell you what, if you told me before the season <laughs> that three AFC East teams would all need to go like 14 and three to have a realistic shot at the one seed, I would call you crazy, but that's where we're at right now. Yeah, it's something that's very interesting about the NFL and this is why they play the games this is why there's parody this is why it's a fun league to watch six of the six plus win teams out of eight in the league right now are in the east oh between AFC and NFC yeah AFC East has three NFC East has three which is probably the bigger surprise but still I don't think most people would have put the Jets there. And it does make these races for the divisional crowns really, really tight. Mm -hmm. And all of it concentrated in the East is exactly opposite because, of course, we said it was going to be the AFC West. So, of course, that was doomed <laughs> from the start. But it all the power is in the East right now. And somebody's, oh, Cowboys technically are, yeah, whatever. Anyways, they're in the East. We're counting them in the East. It is it makes it very, very difficult for those teams that are very good within those divisions but are not going to win the divisional crown, their margin gets really thin. And it's just a factor of, you know, how they stack up and where the divisions lay and how good those teams are. But six of the eight six-win teams are in two divisions and they're all in the East. We could have legitimately on both conferences two wildcard teams with 12-plus wins Correct. for each conference. That's fucking insane. And also, it guarantees that we're going to get divisional rematches in the playoffs, which are always fun because they're filled with a little bit of extra hate. A little bit of yeah. extra hate. Uh, all right, three up, number three. Uh, Seahawks, Cardinals. Speaking of unexpected things happening in the West, uh, the Seahawks are the arguably the best team in the NFC West. Now, a healthy Niners. Do I think a healthy Niners would beat them? Probably. But the Niners, when's the last time they were actually fully healthy? I, I truly can't remember at this point. So for now, 
based on current health projections, I would say the Seahawks are the best team in the NFC West, and they are certainly a hell of a lot better than the Arizona Cardinals. The Arizona Cardinals are a freaking mess. Whereas the Seahawks, were not for one weird kind of turnover, probably would have blew them out. Like, they were very close to completely blowing this team out. And even then, even after that turnover, I still kind of felt like, eh, they're probably fine. And they were. Like, they are just top to bottom from the quarterback position. Like, Geno is is playing better at quarterback than Kyler, and I don't even really think it's particularly close. Um, the run game is better. Kenneth Walker is incredible. 26 carries for a buck nine and two more touchdowns. He's explosive. Um, he can run inside. He can run outside. He breaks tackles. It doesn't even matter what kind of scheme you give him, whether it's zone, gap, anything like that. Like, he can run anything. He is absolutely who we thought he was going to be. Um, the receivers, DK and Lockett, are both on pace for 1,000 yards. The young offensive line, especially at tackles, are playing well. Uh, they have some incredible defensive pieces that are playing like pro bowlers this year. Both of their rookie corners, Tariq Willen and Kobe Bryant. Nucheno Nuosu, who was your favorite uh, going into this offseason in terms of a low-key addition, has got what, like seven sacks already or something like that. Yeah, like, he's tied with Von Miller. We all knew that incredible. was going to happen, right? It's incredible. Like this team from top to bottom, by far better than the Cardinals. But I would even say better than the Niners right now because the Niners just can't get healthy. And even then, when the Niners are healthy, the Seahawks would still give them a game. Like they absolutely would give them a game. And, you know, neutral field, it would be a tough line to project. So I think Seahawks are making the playoffs. Which, going into the year, when everybody thought they were going to be in the running for the first overall pick, well, not everybody. You and I thought they were uh, you know, going to be better than that. But I didn't think they were going to be a playoff team. Like I, I'm not that arrogant to pretend like that's what my projection was. They are far exceeding everybody's expectations, except probably their own. And, you know, credit to them for that. Always. Nobody believed in this team. We believed in it more than average a lot of people said this was going to be the worst team in the nfl if it wasn't them it was the bears and we said "Mm, we think they're going to be better than that but if you had said oh winning the division no neither one of us predicted that they would even be in contention for the division and they are winning it handily right now make no mistake this is a real team that can take a punch because gino came out through that horrendous pick early on and If you're not a complete team at that point, you start going, oh, no. After the pick, Geno went 10 for 12 for 123 yards and a touchdown, 7 for 7 on third down conversions, two rushes for 31 yards to keep drives moving, and two TD drives. And he was pressing for a third before I stopped taking stats. That's not his stat line for the whole game. That is directly after the pick. That's what he did. Geno is the unquestioned leader of this team. He's got six games with a 100-plus passer rating. That leads the National Football League. So in terms of who he's playing better than, the answer is just about everybody. <laughs> We're not talking about overall talent ceiling. We're not saying that, you know, Geno Smith is a better prospect than Josh Allen. We're saying right now in terms of efficiency, Geno is playing in the top tier of quarterbacks in the NFL, and that's not arguable. Talked about Achenna and Wosu. Both of the corners who've made plays throughout. Rookies continue to contribute and sort of drive this team forward. And there's a feeling around this team. Being in the Pacific Northwest, this is a fun team. This is a fun team to root for, and it's far more interesting to watch. And that's the one take I got right at preseason was 
this team's going to be more fun for me to watch than the past three or four years because the Seahawks were kind of they had a boilerplate and they would do things the same way and it usually played out the same way on the field and then Russ would have to come to save them either whether it was late in games or late in the season and they wouldn't quite make it over the hump that was the Seahawks recipe and then they just blew it the hell up they traded Russ they got a ton of picks and I said no matter what happens it's going to be more interesting it's going to be more fun have they exceeded all my expectations yes every single one of them do I think they are for real and can push deep into the playoffs at this point, I do. They are growing together. They are believing, and they are taking down foes, and they look like they expect to. This is not the happy-to-be-there team, not even close. They are believing that they can roll over certainly their own division, but probably play with most teams in the NFC. And until I see somebody prove them wrong, I'm going to roll right with them. The game that I most want to see right now out of any matchup in the league, Seahawks-Eagles. 100%. I think that would be a war. Like, from, yeah. from start to finish, that would be a freaking war, especially if the Eagles still can't stop the run. Because I'm sorry, Kenneth Walker is getting like 300 yards in that game. Like, yeah, no, I would, lo- I would love to see that game. I think the Eagles have a good chance to win that game for all the things we just talked about, the Eagles that are positive. Probably. Your assertion, your assertion that the 49ers would win right now, I'm, I don't think I'm going on on that plank with you. I think the Seahawks would beat the pants off the 49ers straight up on a neutral field right now banged up 49ers yeah probably healthy 49ers i don't know 49ers it would be close they wouldn't beat the pants off them but i still think the seahawks win that game whereas straight up neutral field both teams healthy eagles seahawks i think eagles still win that game because overall they're farther along in their plan and they are more talented but i don't think it would be the blowout that people think it would be I just hope we get those matchups in January. I really do. Because yeah. those are the ones I really care about. Like, I, I would love to see a, a Seahawks-Eagles. I would love to see, like, uh, 49ers-Giants. That would fascinate me. Completely fascinate me. You know? It, you know, it would Vikings. be super fun. Stylistically, oh, yeah. that game, Giants-49ers, would be really cool to see how it played out and to see how the coordinators called that game both D'Amico Ryans versus Dable oh yes please like come on show me that so those are the matchups that we root for that we hope for as NFL fans just like you do we want to see top against top and right now there's no way to slice it other than the Seahawks are at the top and they're one of those teams and they belong there This week's episode is brought to you by our friends over at Raycon, and I've been using these things a lot lately because I've been flying so much across the country, and the battery life is really good, so they're kind of my go-to flying earbuds. But I also use them for Zoom meetings and media interviews on my laptop or just out by the river when I go hiking and biking, and they've never let me down in any of those instances. The audio quality is great, there's noise isolation, there's multiple sound profiles, and the in-ear fit is excellent too. The battery life, like I mentioned, lasts a long time. It's about eight hours per charge with 32 hours of battery life total. But the best part is price because it's a good quality product with all of those features, but for way less money than a lot of other premium earbuds are marked up for. It's like 30% of the cost because you're not paying extra just for branding and status. So if you just want a good set of wireless earbuds, either for yourself or as a gift for anyone else this holiday season that needs a new pair, you can go to buyraycon.com and use promo code EARLYBF 
That is all one word, early BF, and that will give you 20% off your order site-wide. Or you can save even bigger and get 30% off Raycon's exclusive holiday bundles. Again, that is buyraycon.com, promo code EARLYBF, that's all one word, for either 20% off site-wide or 30% off the holiday bundles. Thank you again to Raycon for supporting us and this show. And with that, let's get back to it. Uh, all right. That's enough pleasantries. Unfortunately, <laughs> we have to get to three down. Uh, okay. Three down number one. <laughs> we didn't get to touch on it earlier because we were so focused on all of the, the crazy coaching news. We got to talk about the Colts offensive line. Um, Nine sacks is horrific and terrible, and there's multiple ways uh, that you can that you can look at any team giving up nine sacks because it's hard to just blame one thing. Some are on the quarterback, some are on the offensive line, some are on the running back, some are on communication, some are on just getting beat. But regardless, as a whole, giving up nine sacks to the Patriots is the low point of the season uh for the Colts it was the worst offensive performance of the season for them and that's saying a lot I I really don't even know where to go from here like how how is Jeff Saturday supposed to fix this when he has literally no coaches on his staff that have ever called plays in the NFL what is he supposed to do about that this is not good like you talk about building from the inside out on any team, and Ballard is a huge believer in that, both offensive line and defensive line. He's invested many of his high picks on both sides of the ball, but the Colts' offensive line right now, I think people were giving it grace with the retirements of the tackles. You talked about Costanzo earlier. like, And it doesn't deserve grace anymore. The offensive line looks really cooked, and one of the scariest parts of that is Quentin Nelson, who has been an NFL god, literally since his entry all pro caliber player since being drafted which is incredibly rare looks lost on certain downs and it's unsettling he has been rooted out by guys like tim settle in buffalo he got whooped by dietrich wise jr in this game it's really tough to say anything about sam erlinger i feel really bad for sam erlinger he's a tough guy he's a texas kid like he stood in there like a gunslinger and took his shots, but anytime you're taking nine sacks, it's pretty impossible to grade anything about quarterback play because the basis of your offense, which is protection and run blocking coming from the offensive line, is completely shattered. On the flip side, really glad we talked about Matt Judon a couple of weeks ago, so we're not lately Johnny-come-lately bandwaggers on this one. Like, Judon hasn't slowed up since we mentioned him a couple of weeks ago he has 11 and a half sacks to lead the league right now because of his fiesta yesterday but in case you've been listening to us and you know that sacks are fickle and sometimes they're cyclical it's not a mistake for judon he's also second in the league and with 43 pressures so he's been earning it but the rest of that off our defensive line just poured it on yesterday and sam Erlinger had no shot neither did the no Colts at that point he's sitting duck so what this runs down to and Keep in mind, I wrote this last night before Frank Wright got fired. This team's in a weird spot. They have no QB. They have very few answers on the offensive line right now. And I wrote, they may be in line for some real changes in the offseason or, you know, tomorrow morning if uh, Jim Irsay is your owner. 
team building wise, they're in this weird limbo land where they're too talented for a total teardown. If you look at the talent end to end on the Colts roster, it's pretty good. It's not bottom of the league by any stretch, but they're not talented enough to be one or two players away. You can't say if you just naturally import Bryce Young or CJ Stroud or pick your quarterback prospect of the future that they're automatically going to bounce right back up and be leading the division they're not they have some sort of deep-seated rot on the offensive line that they need to root out and fix we talked about bernard ryman and needing to sort of reclaim him as a project or move him along but they have a ton of playmakers on offense that they've assembled they have some very good players on the defensive line the linebacking core secondary needs some work so it's it's just this weird place where they're not good enough but they're not bad enough they're right in the middle and they're really going to have to decide is this a all the way to the studs teardown which would be an aggressive move and probably wouldn't be done by ballard because that's not his style or is this a sort of keep pounding keep chipping away definitely we need a quarterback it's going to take a couple of years for him to get up to speed and we'll add other pieces as we go it's gonna be fascinating to see how that happens if Ballard survives, and if he doesn't, how his successor takes on what is probably a bigger project than Colts fans would like to really acknowledge that it is right now. I think project is is the proper term for it because this team as a whole is a, is a project that they have to fix. Um, there are some young pieces that I still think have a chance to be developed. Uh, Michael Pittman's already there. He's already that dude, but like, I would love for, you know, Reggie Wayne, regardless of what happens with the staff next year, I would love Reggie Wayne to stay on and help develop Alec Pierce. I would love for them to find a way to develop Ryman into a serviceable left tackle like we alluded to earlier. I would love uh, for them to to get Braden Smith back, you know, playing the level he was before where he was one of the best right tackles in the league. Um, even Quentin Nelson is having a down year. He's not... In my opinion, he's not playing terrible, but he's on pace to allow the most pressures of his career, which is like 25, 26 or something like that, which by his standards is still 80% more than we're used to him giving up at like 12 to 15. So it's it, there's a lot of good pieces here that I would love to see developed, and I would love for them to, whoever the new coaching staff is, to take that core and get them to where we think they can be. At the same time, there are some pretty bloated contracts that they're going to have to get rid of and do kind of like a little mini accelerated teardown around that young core that we like so much. Because that young core, as we found out, can't do everything by themselves. They they are not good enough yet to carry the team when the quarterback is a statue or, in Ellinger's case, when the quarterback doesn't see pressure that well. Um, they are not at that point yet where they can carry the quarterback position. So I would like to see kind of an accelerated teardown where we get rid of some bad contracts. Uh, we build around the core with, um, you know, as many cheap uh, draft picks as we can hope to hit on. And honestly, like Seattle's the model here. Like if they can get a draft like Seattle had where we got two great rookie uh, tackles, not that they need two of them, but if we can if we can get to that point where it's like Ryman's a cheap, good left tackle and we got, you know, young corners that we get on day two and day three that are top 25 to 30 in the league. And like, if we can get to that point where they hit on one draft to get a good, cheap layer of talent around the core and then they somehow 
somehow get better at the quarterback position through the draft and they get lucky and they and they find a, a young kid they like they can do that kind of Seattle-ish accelerated teardown. But like you said, this is a project. It is a project of the highest order. And unfortunately for them, I think it's going to be harder for them to pull off than Seattle because they don't have the same, or rather, the amount of high-value assets that Seattle had to work with. So the margin for error is smaller, and the level of difficulty is higher. I'm not saying it's not impossible for them to bounce back next year, but it's tough. The timeline is probably two years, and I know Colts fans don't want to hear that, but even if you grab a highly talented rookie quarterback, even if he has a record-setting year, a Justin Herbert year as a rookie, it's still going to be another year before you're truly competing. So that's two years right there. Like, Mm -hmm. even if unless he was in the building as an understudy and could get those snaps out of the way in the second half of this year, there might be a chance with a Seattle type draft that you could be good next year without that player already in the building. It's unlikely. Uh, Three down number two here. (laughs) Even though I'm a Texans fan and I love, I love relishing in the Colts anguish. There's only so much I can take per day. (laughs) (laughs) getting to three down number two let's talk about the rams who i completely forgot they even lost that game yesterday because it almost seemed impossible that they were going to lose that game and they found a way to lose that game like they were completely controlling it for 58 minutes you know 55 58 minutes something like that and then just tom brady who they hadn't really done anything all day until we get to the last drive and then they're just marching down the field and that was a gut punch of a loss. Absolute gut punch of a loss. Almost like an unbelievable, how the hell do you blow that kind of loss? But they managed because the Rams this year, these are not your older brother's Rams, man. They got problems. No, this is a shaken team. This is a team that has problems that have now gone all the way down to the core, all the way to the foundation. The head coach talked about it. McVay talked about it in his press conference at the end of yesterday. The offensive line the Rams suffered in the offseason with Whitworth retiring and Corbett moving on were bigger than anybody imagined. And they thought they had folks to step in as they have when they've suffered previous losses. And they thought that was going to work. Injuries came into play. Stafford slipped a little bit. OBJ is not there to stir in the occasional big play that keeps a drive going. And the sort of death spiral that they've been in was on. So the Rams offense this season has scored 10. That was the game we were at. 31, 20, they bounced back in the next two weeks, and we thought, ah, okay. Then 9, 10, 24, 14, and yesterday, 13. 27th in scoring for the Rams. Now, let that just settle. Six rushing and eight passing TDs total, less or basically one passing TD a week, which again for the Rams, Cooper Cup, Matt Stafford, the folks read Tyler Higby, even like, nope, not the same old Rams. They just can't sustain drives. We've talked about this with other teams, uh, notably the Packers. One of the things we said in the offseason about them, we didn't say it about the Rams. We thought the Rams were going to be able to continue their winning ways. They still look explosive at times 
but it's inconsistent and it's not the norm. It almost feels like, oh, oh, look, look, that's the thing they can still do. But it that's not going to win games. And this particular loss to the Bucks and the fashion in which it happened really has set a sort of pall over that organization. Jordan Rodrigue, who writes about them for The Athletic, one of the best journalists going right now, has a different tone in her coverage starting last night, which is, nah, this is a step back kind of moment. Look at a reset, much like what the Bears did during their mini-buy, but nobody was predicting the Rams and the Bears were going to be anywhere near the same stratosphere offensively. And right now, hate to say it, but the Bears are better than the Rams on offense. And if you had that bet at MGM in the offseason, go cash it. It, it, nobody it's not had even particularly bet. close, man. Yeah, and <laughs> nobody had that bet. Like these, these are two things that very few people saw coming, and nobody saw coming together. And the Rams are in a place where they really do have to sit down and go, okay, this is almost like us starting over in the middle, which is a very difficult thing for a team to do after its bye week. Rams have already had their bye. They got a lot of work to do. I'm not going to write them off, but I'm going to start warming up the band. My main takeaway uh, from it, honestly, because my, my head was, was going through this thought experiment as Tom was marching down the field. <laughs> Would Brian Burns have changed that game? Possibly, maybe, in the last drive. But then again, Tom was getting the ball out in like 2.2, 2.3 seconds. So maybe he wouldn't have. You know, maybe he he would not have had the time on a snap-to-snap basis to get a sack and end the game on that last drive and get the Rams a victory so they can limp into another week and hopefully try to keep a team under 15 points. Maybe he would have affected that game. Realistically, though, probably not. And will Brian Burns, or would have Brian Burns, saved their season if they pulled off that trade for two first-round picks? and a second round pick actually the and exact offer yeah. it was uh 24 to 2025 first and a 20 uh, and a 2023 second round pick like would that have saved their season probably not and i almost feel like mcveigh and sneed and I, I know you've mentioned this uh they're using these picks like they don't expect to be around to use them anyway like they're like yeah fuck it we'll trade them away because we're not we're not gonna pick we're not going to use those picks. We're not going to be in the building. What do we care what the next regime has to work with? Like, I feel like they are going all in on like, let's get back-to-back Super Bowls and then go sit on a beach for the next 50 years. Like, that's how they're using these picks. It's like, they don't care about the future because the future isn't their problem. Mm-hmm. That's the sense that I get here. And Fitterer on the other side is like, why would I trade away Brian Burns for a first round pick in 2024 and 2025? He doesn't think he's going to be there to make those picks either. So it's like two GMs that are dealing with picks that neither one actually expects to use. And I think that's why that deal dissolved. But like, I truly feel like McVeigh and Snead are running this team. Like they don't give a shit about 2025. They care about 2022, maybe 2023. And they're out. Not that I blame them. Like, you know, it's long hours. They got themselves a, a ring. Like I get it, but they don't care about 2025. That's not their problem. No, and Fitter to a point was like, "What? Do, what good is a 2024 first? Because all I'll have to do is go pick an edge rusher who I hope turns into <laughs> Brian Burns." Yeah. So why do I 
short myself Brian Burns's services until 2024 and then just hope to have to hit again. Like yeah. I already hit. That's what draft picks are for. So there's a little bit of that thrown in as well. But this team is uh, a bit like the Colts. And I didn't think I'd ever be saying that in that they are not one player or one issue away. They have multiple issues right now one player brian burns or anybody else wasn't going to solve that for them and while it might not be a teardown they have been playing very much for the short term and now they need to rebuild the foundation a little bit and those are two different approaches to team building and they need to sort of throttle back and get the trenches right again at least on the offensive side before they really start going forward again yeah uh, three down, number three. <laughs> How often do we get to talk great about the Bears and talk shit about the Packers in one episode, EJ? Not very often, so we're going to take our chance. That's uh, right, and you were going to trash the Colts as a as a Texans fan, so this is just a, a candy-filled episode. It's but... the only good episode we've had all year. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, I mean, many of our fans would probably say that, but yeah. no. I, I've never seen Aaron Rodgers more frustrated than I did against Detroit on Sunday. He was absolutely livid. He was furious. And I've seen him furious when a receiver blows a route, when an offensive lineman blows a blitz pickup and he gets hit. He will absolutely lash out and let somebody hear it. But then he returns to that cool, calm, collected demeanor that we've seen, the silent assassin that just goes out there and smiles and makes plays against your team. I don't care who your team is. He's done it against everybody. But make no mistake, losing to the Lions, a team he has openly discounted and written off for free wins for years. These were these were speed bumps for him. He started his career 15-1 and versus Detroit. Mm-hmm. He doesn't take them seriously nor has he ever this is a massive blow to his professional pride to be looking at the scoreboard for the entire game going guys if we can score a touchdown we're going to put them away it's not like Detroit boat raced them out to 30 points and he was just dejected from halftime on he knew that if they could score a touchdown they probably win this game they couldn't against Detroit and that matters to flip it to the other side, we talk about Rodgers a lot and how much and how out of character this season has been for him. The Packers' D is way too good to be 15th in scoring defense. The offense is 27th in scoring right now. This is not where Packers fans, Packers front office, Packers players are used to being. They have won and won and won and won. They have run that division much like the Patriots ran the AFC East for years and years and years and years. And now they're not. And it's not a fluke. It's not an error. It's not a mistake. It's the sum total of many decisions over the past several years that are coming to fruition. And everybody's having to open their eyes on a Monday morning and go, oh, it's not just that we're not going to win this division. We're a bad football team right now on multiple levels again nowhere near one or two players away from fixing this we don't have answers for the rest of the season and we're not sure we have them beyond that either because if Aaron hangs it up that's what they went all in for and they really are going to be back to zero and Packers fans have no idea after the last 30 years what that looks like uh, the, my main takeaway just from the game itself 
from a schematic perspective, something I found fascinating. Um, this was almost like a mirror image game in, in the sense that all of the problems in this game were the, the, the total opposite of the problems that, that had happened in all the games leading up to this. You know, I did the film room episode talking about how they, they're really bad at sustaining long drives and they were all of a sudden really good at sustaining drives in week eight through the, through the run game. Um, and particularly they would stall out at midfield. Well, they didn't have any problems sustaining drives in this game, but with the pass game, Alan Lazard made a huge difference in terms of being able to get chunk plays from midfield with the pass game, which they had not particularly been able to do. Ironically, in weeks one through eight, when they got in the red zone, they were actually pretty effective. This game, when they got in the red zone, and they got in the red zone a lot, they turned it over three times. So it was uh, the complete opposite problem than what they had been experiencing the rest of the year. And I think that is the mark of a bad football team when every week it's something new and they can't find any sort of consistency or like, oh, we just got to fix this one thing. Like the Eagles, they just got to fix the run defense. That's the one thing. Um, You know, the Bills with all their injuries, especially on defense, they just got to stay healthy. That's like the one thing. That, that's screwing them up. And the Niners, they can't stay healthy. It's the one thing. Um, you know, you look at uh, the Jets, where it's like, oh, defense is there. Run game is there. We just need Zach Allen or Zach Wilson uh, to, to stop turning the freaking ball over. Like, it's one issue you got to work on. The Packers, it's something new every week. And that's a bad football team. When you can't pin down what's wrong, and so everything's wrong. And I think that... I think we have we are in the middle of the end of the Aaron Rodgers era. Whether he stays next year, I can't remember off the top of my head what how the contract is structured. I think they can. I think it it's basically a series of one year deals, if I recall correctly. So this theoretically could just be the last year, and he sails off into the sunset. But like from Aaron's perspective, he knows they're not a year away. They're not like they are not deep enough. They are not a year away in the NFC. So I feel like he might not even want to stick around for it either. You know, and, and the Packers, like they're up against it with the cap. They're giving them fucking 50 million a year. Like it's best for everyone. And it's best for the Packers, especially if this just ends after 2022, because they are in desperate need of a rebuild. They really, really need that money. They need assets. Not to bring it up again. They need to do what Seattle did, which is just say, screw it. We're resetting. We hit on one draft class, and we'll see if we can get back quickly. But, like, if they go down this path of, of paying Aaron a gazillion dollars and trying to make it work with Alan Lazard as a number one and hoping Romeo Dubs turns into, you know, the next <laughs> Devontae Adams or, you know, Watson staying healthy, it, it's going to be like this next year too. So it's I think it's over. And the one reason they can't do what? Seattle is doing is Aaron probably doesn't want to be traded and so they won't get assets no. back if he retires it is a relief it's about 10 and a half million dead cap if he retires and then you know pretty much he's off the books obviously his bonuses are already paid but they don't get any draft picks for that and Seattle got a load of draft picks for Russell Wilson because he was willing to be traded to the Broncos so They've got a tough road to hoe. They don't have a ton of answers, and it could cause a major shakeup because, again, Green Bay's never really seen this level of upset or transition in the last three decades. 
Oh, man. On one hand, I relish it, but on, on the other, I, I feel bad for a lot of the Packers fans I am friends with, which I do have a lot of Packers, like especially Tom Grassi. God, I feel bad for Tom Grassi because he's going through it, man. Like it's every week. It's a new thing every yeah. week. So I, I feel bad for I feel bad for Packer fans. Um, I don't necessarily feel bad for Aaron Rodgers, but I'm, I'm ready for the bad man to leave. EJ, I'm ready for the bad man to go. Yeah. And anyway. it's likely we'll probably see that. Uh, all right, let's get to three fun. Even though Packers being bad is pretty fun. Three fun. Number one, Joe Mixon went nuclear this week. And uh, I say this as somebody who had Justin Fields getting like 48 points. And then I look over and Trevor Sikama, my arch nemesis in our fantasy league, at like 53 just for Mixon. I was like, really? The one time Justin Fields can carry me and you got friggin' Joe Mixon? 22 for a buck 53, four rushing touchdowns, another four for 58 through the air, and another receiving touchdown for a total of 26 touches, 211 yards, five touchdowns. An absurd performance. And it wasn't just, oh, we're going to feed him goal line carries. Believe me, he did get goal line carries, but there was one from like 15 yards out on duo where he pressed it, linebacker came up, so he's like, all right, I'm bouncing this thing. It's one-on-one on the corner on the edge, and he like chopped the corner's hand down and then just kept going. And I'm like, God, like that's that's a guy who not just getting schemed touches in the red zone, but somebody who can create on his own and do it all by himself. He's one of the best running backs in the league, and uh, happy to see him uh, finally blow up like we know he can. It's unfortunate that it happened against you. <laughs> Good on you, Trev. We love you. But Joe Mixon was the fantasy daisy cutter this week. He was the 10,000-pound bomb that you dropped to just level the forest. If you have him and nobody else, you could probably win most of your matchups. Uh, he's not been great at breaking tackles this year. In fact, that that rate's been really low for him, which is uncharacteristic. Usually he's pretty good at it. From the first score on Sunday, the way he looked at the camera, you knew it was going to be a good day. And for me, a good day is like 135 yards, two touchdowns. Like, that would have been a good day. But he just looked like, yep, I'm going to be here all day. Like, I expect to be here. And then he just continued to go off. Like, it just didn't stop. And it's really cool because Mixon, when he's running like that, and that's, you know, more often, again, some days it's going to pop, some days it's not. Obviously, on Sunday it popped. He's so talented. He's right up there with the top five, seven running backs in the league. Hasn't necessarily been showing that every week this year, but this was his week. And good on you, Joe. Glad everybody gets to see it because it was a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, three fun number two. We got to talk about Kirk Cousins and not just for, you know, him showing off the six pack on the plane, doing the dance, everything like that. Uh, Side note, Kirk kind of shredded. Didn't realize that that dude takes care of himself. I was like, shit. All right. Kirk's Kirk's been hitting the gym. Uh, But beyond that on the field, he was dealing like I know the, the, the box score and the points might not represent it, but he had some throws in that game where I was like, all right, microwave Kirk was on this week and, and, he was uh, fitted into Hawkinson, who immediately, by the way, became a big part of the offense. Um, he was connected with Justin Jefferson. Like, everything about that Vikings pass game screamed should have been 30 points. Didn't get to 30, but 
uh, I'll be damned. Kirk played really well in that game. This is one of those don't stat scout. Stat scouting is bad. If you look at the stats and you go 22 of 40, you'd go, oh, Cousins, come on. If you look at the tape, you're shocked by that number like I was. He was on point throughout the game. Even the interception was not his fault. Yes, it was a contested catch, but it was one-on-one. I would have thrown that ball with leverage too. He was making absurd passes throughout this one. The one to Dalvin Cook in the end zone is specifically a, oh, okay, you're in your bag. You can just throw anything now. Mm-hmm. Little curler back towards the end zone line, over coverage into Dalvin's hand before he goes out of bounds. Like, just an absurd sort of little layer throw. He he did it right in stride, in, just easily in stride with his day, too. He was just on point. Passes were where they needed to be. Justin Jefferson's got a very strong case for I'm the best receiver in the league. Like, he's still got some competition for that title, but he is in that conversation. And if he's not, I don't want to hear your conversation because you're wrong. <laughs> like, Justin Jefferson is a weapon at all levels. And Hawkinson is amazing. Nine for 70, being with the team for less than a week unreal like most people i don't think probably appreciate how difficult that is to go from one scheme to another um and just step right in and have 10 basically almost 10 catches for 70 yards look like a part of this offense going forward that they've been missing really interesting game again the score didn't show it but cousins absolutely deserved his little dance party on the plane because he was microwave kirk hot kirk whatever good kirk whatever you want to call him he when he's at that level he can throw with anybody in the league and sunday was one of those days and then uh finally three down uh or three down three fun <laughs> number three the jags themselves are fun again and especially travis Etienne. um foot injuries can be kind of finicky to come back from sometimes and you never really know what you're gonna get but etn himself over the last like five weeks has been on a tear, just absolutely destroying front sevens. And especially when he gets the edge, that kind of curvilinear speed, and we talked about this on the live stream, um, but because he's kind of duck-footed in his gait, which in itself a lot of physical therapists and doctors and everything like that, when they analyzed him coming out, said that he runs like a guy who puts a lot of stress on certain ligaments and it could cause him to sustain injuries, lower body injuries specifically, which unfortunately he did. But the advantage of that duck-footedness is that when he gets to the edge, if you look at the GPS data, he's actually faster when he's turning upfield to get the edge than when he's actually moving straight down the boundary. Because when you when you have that kind of gait from a physiological perspective, and you know, imagine this is this, the, the inside of the field, when you're turning and wheeling upfield and your toe is naturally pointed inside and kind of uh, it's almost like weaponizing the force to slingshot your way down the field. Um, I'm trying, I'm trying to visualize this for people that aren't watching the video feed and it makes him freaking impossible to tackle on like toss plays or if you can hit the front side on outside zone, anything like that where a linebacker has to take an angle and get to a spot and they're not used to somebody moving 21 and a half miles an hour around the corner. They're used to them only getting that speed once they turn upfield. If they're already at that speed, they're freaking impossible to hit. And so they've done a really good job of kind of emphasizing how fast he gets around the corner. 
and using that to their advantage because he is burning pursuit angles every single week because of how he runs. Not to mention the fact that he's ripped off some really nice inside gains too on power and counter and all that kind of stuff. He's a fascinating runner, a unique runner from a physiological perspective. And because of that, he's more effective than most running backs are because he can do things physically that most running backs cannot do. I am so pleased to watch you stop shoveling with both hands right now and <laughs> digging yourself a hole on that one. Let me simplify it for you, folks. Travis Etienne's really fast around the corner. Oh, well, he's, shit. I could have just... <laughs> I, anyways, he's not as fast in a straight line. If you've seen when he's gotten caught this year, it has been when he's in a straight line and basically kind of tops out he's really quick and this is the difference between quick and fast he accelerates really quickly whether it's in a straight line or around the corner he is faster he carries more speed around a corner than most people do but when he gets caught as he sort of tops out he doesn't have that people talk about fifth gear or whatever else to really open up into and that's when he gets caught but in the short area good luck as such He's fifth in rushing and has less attempts than anybody else in the top nine. So efficiency-wise, he's crushing it. He's 320 yards away from 1,000 right now. We're at week nine. Mm. He gets 320 more yards, he gets 1,000 yards, and he already has 170-plus receiving. So if you're talking about all-purpose yards, he's almost there already. Trevor Lawrence himself has thrown for more yards than three guys we've talked about in this podcast. Jalen Hurts, Kirk Cousins, or Tua. That's pretty well, damn two impressive. Well, two has missed a couple games, but still. But you know, still. You know. Devin Lloyd, who was a, you know, a podcast favorite coming into this year's draft season, had a pick and a sack on Sunday. Use those pass rush skills that we talked about. So if you're a longtime bootleg listener, you already knew about that. Wasn't a surprise. And Juwan Smoot had two sacks on Sunday, three and a half in the last two weeks. He's been on a little heater of his own. So this team in general is really cool. Trevor's distributing the ball. It's not one receiver leading the way. He's hitting Zay Jones and Marvin Jones Jr. Like, uh, you know, even the this what we thought was a crazy serious overpay for their top free agent has been contributing. Christian Kirk's look like a bit of a different receiver as well. So this is a cool, fun the different team much in the way that i talked about seattle being you know different than the way they were last year obviously a different situation going on in jacksonville but this is a cool team that can press other teams on both sides of the ball and they're just fun to watch i do think that they uh they have some pieces that give me a lot of optimism i i, I do think that looking forward to 2023 is when we're really going to see that jump, assuming that uh, Calvin Ridley is going to get to play in 2023, because mm. I think he's kind of the missing piece here to get Trevor a true true number one. But everything that I've seen out of ETN, and even some of the things that I've seen out of Trevor, just want him to clean up the red zone picks, some of the things I've seen out of Trevor are really encouraging. Some of the things I've seen from the young defensive pieces are encouraging. If Calvin Ridley is allowed to play in 2023, and they get some new warm bodies at corner at this point. I'll take fucking anything at this point for, for new corners. Uh, they're probably going to make a run at the AFC South title. Um, again, not quite there yet, but they're not getting blown out consistently. A lot of their losses are fairly tight and you're seeing these things every week where you're like, I think this can work. And they do rip off some really nice, good team wins. So I, I think the Jags are fun. 
even if their record doesn't reflect it. And I think we can see the roadmap to sustainable long-term success. Not 2017 success where it's a flash in the pan. We want sustainable, long-term, every year success. I think they're on their way. We've got the quarterback, and it seems like, again, they've got a coaching staff that's willing to adapt whatever they're doing to that quarterback. That's a huge piece of the puzzle. They keep adding pieces around those young pieces that they have on both sides of the ball. Yeah, we could see them basically placing a bid for the top of the division for the next two to three years if they do. That's the goal, at least, for the folks over in Duval. Uh, All right. One of the last segments of the show here, and our favorite segment of the show, the bootleg shot of the week. All right. uh, Shot of the week, EJ. Uh, I have my, for my shot this week, a wonderful Dorley's 12-year, now you might be saying, Brett, why are you shooting a 12-year rum? Because it's delicious, and it tastes like syrup, and it goes down easy. Pretty easy choice to make for me. And it's only like a $30 bottle, so I don't feel like I'm wasting a sipping rum. I can get a new one anytime I want. No, I think that's good. And, you know, I'm EJ Snyder, and I approve this message. Dorley's (laughs) is great stuff. Um, I have Milagro Blanco today, chilled. And that'll be my celebratory shot for, drumroll please, Bruce Irvin. Bruce Making Irvin. his return to the Pacific Northwest and tackling Saquon Barkley by using the almost lifeless corpse of Daniel Jones. <laughs> so it just proves you can go home again, apparently. <laughs> yeah, uh, people love that just because, A, it's unconventional, and B, it's Bruce Irvin, man. It's good to see him back in the league. We love it. We love it. It's good to hear the Bruce chants in Lumenfield, but Bruce, here's to you for what was one of the most entertaining Shot of the Week nominations of the entire year. Mm. Ooh. Mm. I still prefer it as a sip. Ooh, man, it's hotter as a shot. Yeah. You stack it up, the 12 is the 12 gets on you. Mm. Hello there. <laughs> Brett's ah. awake now. It's okay. It's 1130 in the morning. It's let that, close let, to noon. Let that be a lesson to you, bootleggers. <clears throat> Shots carefully. Okay. Oh, and man. Didn't expect that. And don't take them out of a bowling ball if you can help it. <laughs> yeah. By the way, how's your syphilis? Uh, you know, dead. <laughs> Along with everything else that came with it. That stuff doesn't last when it comes out of a bowling ball finger. Oh, God. Uh, but does Bruce Irvin count as the last surviving member of the Legion of Boom or because he went away and came back? Are we still counting that? I don't know. It seems like an interrupted tenure. We'll need a ruling. Yeah. I don't know who would give us that ruling, but we'll need a ruling. Uh, Seahawks fan, chime in if you still consider him. Maybe I'll ask Legion my buddy Brandon. I'll ask Brandon Schultz whether the Seahawks faithful still consider Bruce uh, a surviving member of the Legion. <laughs> uh, nominees this week. We've got a whole bunch of really good ones to pick from. We narrowed it down to four, and it, nothing against any other ones that were nominated, but we uh, we couldn't do like nine or ten. We got to get it to four. Uh, first one, Cordell Patterson, friend slash favorite of the show, completely running over a defender to get himself in the end zone, and this was his first game back after I think it was like a four or five week absence, something like that clearly fully healthy you know putting that 230 pound frame to good use running over a defender rocky sin straight up out of the wwe suplexing marvin jones jr plopping him right on the shoulder 
hell of a hit by him in the open field. Chikakonkwo, another show favorite, rumbling, bumbling his way uh, on a screen, breaking like four tackles, getting a 40-yard gain to set up uh, the Titans' first score of the evening. And uh, also, by the way, people were saying, Chikakonkwo, who the hell is that? You're going to know the name. You're going to know the name. Nobody that listens to Bootleg said that. And if you did, turn in your membership card at the door. (laughs) Nobody, literally, over on the Bootleg Football Clips channel, we have an extended interview with the guy from the Shrine Bowl. We talked him up throughout the entire draft season as one of those players who was going to be really interesting with usage at the next level. And he just flat out wanted to make a play for Malik Willis. Like, he wanted to make a play early in that game and just set a tone and be like, throw it to me, man. I'll, I'll get you yards. And that was a pure effort play. It was great to see. Great guy. Really glad to see him having success. Just as an aside, a couple of tight ends that Bootleg was really excited about. James Mitchell had a catch last week and another big one this week. Kate Otten was basically the final Kate drive. Otten, yeah. <laughs> basically the final drive for the Bucks. If you listen to Bootleg, you knew about Chigakonkwo, about James Mitchell, about Kate Otten. So nobody that was a bootlegger said, who's Chig? Other folks, maybe, but get them to listen, too, because then they won't not know. Uh, final nominee of the week, Nick Bolton, who I will admit has exceeded my expectations since getting into the league. I thought he was like a, a Denzel Perryman type where, okay, we're a sawed-off shotgun in between the hashes, and we could do one thing and one thing really well. He's actually turned into a very well-rounded linebacker for the Chiefs and made a hell of a hit out in space for a TFL, arguably slamming the coffin shut on the Titans who offensively weren't doing much anyway but uh that third down stop basically ended the game in my opinion uh there was still a little bit of life left but not really after that they they needed that first down couldn't get it because of Nick Bolton making a play out in space and a hell of a hit it was Huge credit to Spags and the defensive coaches in KC. I also thought Nick Bolton was a good player, a solid player against the run, really kind of in between the numbers, but not great in pass coverage. He's improved there. Not necessarily great as a blitzer. He's improved there. Like, he's a young cog for them going forward on defense, and I did not see that one coming. So big credit to the KC defensive coaches there. If you want to vote for any of these, again, pin comment down below. You can drop your uh, your vote for any of these four nominees. Uh, all right, let's get to the final segment of the day, our week 10, or week 10, right? Week 10 yeah. already watch list. Yeah, week 10 watch list headlined by Browns, Dolphins. Both teams playing pretty well, and it's going to be a fascinating matchup style sort of clash and i'm really interested to see who wins browns headed down to play the dolphins in their home stadium uh we'll see how that one turns out vikings bills again with Kirk cousins playing as well as he did in that offense kind of clicking defense kicking up too. danielle hunter had a couple of sacks like interesting game if you'd penciled this one early in the season i would have said bills going away after both of these teams games last week not sure that's the case it's much closer than a lot of people maybe would have liked especially if you're a buffalo fan broncos titans broncos defense is the reason i'm interested in this game broncos defense has been basically tearing the doors off the rest of the league and because of their offensive struggles have been largely ignored the Titans, as we said with KC, match up very interestingly against that. They are a differently built team. 
it's just one of those games I'm going to be watching. It might not be close. It might not even be good, but I really want to see how it works out. And then the oddly fascinated is Jaguars Chiefs for all the reasons we've previously mentioned about the Jaguars. They're a fun team. They can play with folks. Can they play with the big boys? The Chiefs are an established top-tier team in the NFL. How's this one going to work? Are the Chiefs just going to wipe the field with the Jaguars? Are the Jaguars going to be the sort of young upstarts that go, ah, not so fast. We got some good players of our own. So watch list for Week 10, full, and lots of good games. I kind of feel like the Jags might give them a game. I, they I really could. do. I really do. Because I think there's some things that the Jags do well that are similar to what the Titans did well with them in terms of, like you saw the, the first half running game, um, you know, from the Titans against the Chiefs, like, you know, hitting on a couple of those outside zones. Like, Jags can do that, but they also have a more consistent passing threat than the Titans did with – a with Malik Willis and B with, um, you know, the entire Titans receiving core essentially being hurt. <laughs> um, I, I do think that there's at least more complementary threats than what the Titans have to offer through the air for the Jags. So I think if they can hit on some of those same runs that Derrick Henry hit, plus sprinkle in some nice Trevor throws, which we know he can do, they got a shot here. And defensively speaking, I think the game plan from the Titans um, – is a pretty good blueprint for for how to handle KC, which is press the absolute shit out of Travis Kelsey and make them beat you with everybody else. So far, they haven't been able to do that. So you take Kelsey out of the game, force MVS or Skymore or whoever to to take over. Like, I don't know. That, that game screams closer than it should be to me. And Devin Lloyd is a fascinating chess piece for Mahomes because he can play Kelsey... He can spy a little bit. He's not necessarily going to match him to the edge, but Mahomes is not going to get a lot of those free yards you saw against the Titans. Like Devin Lloyd is that flexible sort of, you know, Mr. Fantastic piece that can just show up anywhere and really gum up some of what the Chiefs like to do in the middle of the field. So it'll be it'll be fun. There were some tackles that David Long missed last night that I don't think Devin Lloyd would have missed. But that's just David me. Long's had a pretty good season, but Devin he's a, Lloyd he's is, a good player, but Pat. But, Pat got him a couple times in space, and I oh, don't hundred percent. I don't think it would happen to Lloyd, and kept drives going because of it. Mm -hmm. uh, you made a comment about the fastest four eight player ever. Uh, <laughs> he, he is. Can, <laughs> he can scoot when he needs to, and yeah. Devin Lloyd can scoot as well. So again, a few less, and if you take a few less of those drive extending plays, what do you get? And the answer is could be a close fun game. Yep. Uh, bet. Hell of a week in week nine, and I think it should be even better in week 10 looking at some of the games we got coming down the pipe. We are fully in the playoff hunt in both of the Eastern divisions. Um, both of the Northern divisions, I think, got a little bit spicier this week as well. <laughs> and even in the West, there's a little bit of going on over there, too, um, You know, especially with the Seahawks rise and hopefully the 49ers getting healthier. These playoff races are going to come down to the wire. Excited to see how we do for the last couple months of the season. We are now in November football, and we're going to have a lot more crazy shit to talk about. Make sure to stop by on Thursday for the Falcons-Panthers live stream to see if the Falcons can keep pace in that NFC South race. And uh, and we'll see what, the, what life the Panthers have left. <laughs> Probably not a whole lot, but we'll see. We'll drink through it together, everybody. But uh, see you guys here on Thursday and then next week for the big episode and until then later
Take care.